This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. I mean, one of, one of the things about stigma, people say, well, um, you wouldn't blame a person for having a broken leg or cancer. Why do you blame them? Because they're depressed. Or you wouldn't say to someone with a broken leg, just, you know, um, get back on your feet. Why do, why do people say that to you when you're depressed? You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara and welcome to this week's episode of the Science Focus podcast. Mental health has become a hot topic in recent years, with campaigns asking us to be kind on social media and to reach out to friends who are struggling. It seems now more than ever, we have a better understanding of what it means when someone is struggling with their mental health. But despite this, some people feel that the stigma surrounding it still stops them from getting the help they need. Professor Anthony David is a neuropsychiatrist at University College London, and this week he speaks to our editorial assistant Amy Barrett about why this stigma exists and whether it's getting any better. If you can, just um, tell me, what is your book about? Well, simply, it's, uh, it's seven stories, uh, case histories, if you like, um, based on, you know, patients that I've seen, um, but uh, it's an amalgam of m- many different patients I've seen over the years, uh, but where the stories have sort of um, stayed with me and uh, um, that have been somewhat extraordinary uh, and I, I think make, um, you, you know, a, a, a unusual uh, reflections of, of people's life history. Um, it's only as I was 
writing these stories, which I hope are of interest in their own right, that I sort of started to see that there was a theme, that it was about something. Um, and in a way, it's about how we are all biological organisms, but we all have our thoughts and feelings, but we're all also part of the wider culture and society. And psychiatrists talk about the biopsychosocial approach to mental health. And it sounds at one, uh, on the one hand, quite technical um, and academic. And on the other hand, it sounds like, well, it's just a bit of everything, isn't it? It's motherhood and apple pie. Um, but I think by talking about individual cases, you get to see what, why the biopsychosocial approach is very substantial and quite profound. So there may be an individual um, going through a crisis, but in the background, there may be, you know, religion uh, as a sort of specter hanging over them. Uh, they, they may be caught in, um, they may be a, a woman who finds themselves caught in the sort of cultural expectations on them as a woman. Um, they, they may be someone for whom racism is a sort of ever-present social reality. And so that's kind of happening outside, as it were. That's going on all the time. Uh, while for them, it's about their conflicts, their, their struggles, their individual uh, needs, and how they're not being met, how they're being distorted. And as a neuropsychiatrist, um, I've got to try and take all of that into account as to what's happening in, in their bodies and in their brains. Um, do they have a, a condition that might be have, have they experienced some sort of damage to their brains through, through an accident or illness or disease? Um, do they have a condition where the sort of uh, biological processes um, normally run like clockwork without us knowing? Have they gone awry somehow and that's sparked off difficulties in terms of their drives and motivations? So somehow putting all that together, all those levels together, um, is, is, is what we're doing when we're trying to understand what a person's going through. So by, by sort of telling the story, by trying to understand uh, what it all means, uh, I'm hoping that people can see the sort of breadth and complexity that goes into uh, not only that goes into psychiatry, but that goes into, you know, our struggle to understand our lives. So, so that's kind of, <laughs> if you like, what it's about. <laughs> and these stories that you're telling, that, that, you know, they're, they're first-hand, aren't they, that you actually meet with patients as a neuropsychiatrist. What, what is your day like working in the, in the clinic? Well, um, it's, I mean, one thing about being... A psychiatrist is never boring. I mean, yes, it can be frustrating, and uh, sometimes you have to take the flag, but it's never ever boring. Uh, so I, I, I spent quite a long time working in a psychiatric hospital. I had an inpatient unit, so I had a ward. Um, so we were seeing kind of the 
severe end of the spectrum of, of patients. So, um, you know, that was quite tough. Um, but I had a very varied uh, sort of week. I, I'd also um, crossed the road into the general hospital uh, onto the neurology and neurosurgical wards where there'd be patients referred because they've got a, a, a mental health problem as a result of brain damage or brain injury specifically. So that, that, was a, that was a very interesting kind of area. So you, not only was it interesting to be in the territory of you know, high-tech biomedicine, uh, but, but also to sort of try and speak up for the mental health side of a person you know, lying in a, a bed connected to all the machines and uh, having all the high-tech scans. Um, and then there's just the outpatient clinic. So a person comes to you, there's a letter from a GP or another psychiatrist or another doctor saying, please, can you see so-and-so? There's a few paragraphs, and there you are. You've got, well, we have the luxury of having a, quite a bit of time, sometimes an hour or an hour and a half uh, on the first meeting, and it could be anything. could be anything. So... So, so my my career has spanned all of those things. Uh, nowadays, it's more just the outpatient clinic, but uh, I, I, I draw on the different settings um, in the book to, to show again the kind of variety and spectrum of of people that the neuropsychiatrist encounters. And when a patient comes to you, say in, in the outpatient clinic, um, mm-hmm. what do you need to know about them in order to help them? Well, um, almost there's almost nothing that's not relevant. Um, usually, you'll ha- have just a, a a brief indication of a problem, and obviously that's where you start. Um, and you know, the best consultation is with with you, the the doctor, saying as little as possible, and the person just telling their story as they they find it. Um, but there is a sort of routine and structure to, you know, the way one carries out these assessments. So, so you start with that and then you usually then go back to the person's family, get them to describe their family background, their, their own development and upbringing. And then obviously the, the sort of current preoccupations like they might have and, it's putting all of that together, making sense of where they are now in relation to what's gone before, um, not forgetting the things that the individual themselves may not be aware of, um, illness and, and diseases and, and family history, but also um, you know what, what their understanding is, how they've tried to cope with fears or beliefs or... Um, fluctuations in mood or difficulties with biological drives like eating and sleeping and uh, try and come up with what we call a formulation. Uh, so it's, it's the, a diagnosis is, is a kind of, it's a necessary labeling that we have to do so we can communicate with other doctors and so on. But the formulation is, is a sort of 
diagnosis in three or four sentences that uh, encapsulates what what what's the essence, what's going on, what perhaps has led to it, and where we think we might be able to find a route out. And uh, so, you know, that's the sort of core encounter. Mm-hmm. And you must sort of experience so, so many different people, so many different um, problems. What's the, maybe the hardest situation you found yourself in over your career? Oh, gosh. Um, well, um, there, there, there's so many different challenges. And uh, I think uh, accepting one's inability to change a situation, uh, you know, the frustration of that, the, the impotence of that, sometimes in the face of just relentless underlying disease that we just can't change. Um, you know, those, those, those are perhaps the toughest things. I mean, sometimes um, you become the focus of a lot of um, despair and distrust, uh, you know, individually, so that the patient sees you as the problem. And uh, you're trying to do your best, but uh, it seems like whatever you do provokes um, more and more anger and resentment. So that that's the kind of unique thing that psychiatrists have to deal with. I mean, per, uh, the worst thing that can happen uh, in in the context of psychiatric com- consultation is, I think, probably suicide. And there is one of the one of the stories in in the book does deal with that, and you know obviously that is a, a just an unbearable tragedy for the individual and their family and their loved ones, but of course it does really resonate with healthcare professionals as well. You know they often feel incredibly guilty and uh, frustrated and you know impotent. Um, it is part of the job in a way. We, we, if you're trying to deal with people um, at their limits and extremists, um, it's you know that's going to happen sometimes. In the same way that if you're if you're a cancer specialist, people are going to die of cancer, and that's just part of the job. But it never makes it easier, and it always prompts you to try and understand things. What might you have done? What might have been different? Uh, how might we have, you know, alleviated, alleviated that pain? But so that—that's—it's it, a constant uh, sadness, but also a kind of motivator to try and do better, to try and understand more deeply. Hmm. You must have to protect your own mental health, though, as well in that situation. Um, to some extent, yes. Uh, I mean, yeah, you—you—you've got to. Uh, continue. Got to be able to go on and look after the next person and 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 survive. And I think we're we're um, increasingly aware that uh, we have our own needs. But it it, it isn't. It, it's more about um, and and being open to sort of feeling what it's like to be bereaved or to suffer to some extent. Uh, is a necessary part of part of the job, 
um, yes, you can't allow yourself to be overwhelmed by it, but uh, um, feeling it at some level is is absolutely necessary. And so, is there anything that makes a person more likely to suffer with with poor mental health? Well, um, of course, we're no one's immune. Um, it's it's something that sort of binds all humanity together. Um, our vulnerability or propensity to to suffer from uh, mental ill health, uh, but obviously people it isn't evenly spread, and and again taking the sort of biopsychosocial approach, we know that you know poverty, deprivation uh, accumulates around people with mental health problems and vice versa. You know it's. It, it isn't an accidental uh, connection, and when people's lives are uh, more comfortable and more rewarding, their mental health is better. Uh, but of course, we all know people whose lives seem to be perfect, the people who seem to have everything they need, and yet um, it's not like that for their inner lives. And uh, their Sometimes things we forget are things like a, a, what's going on in their brains biologically, which pers- the person might not be aware of. Um, although we don't really understand it yet, there are genes and heritable factors that uh, you know, can lead, make a person more likely to react in a certain way. That doesn't mean that that's a destiny but it's, it's part of the picture. And of course, the way that we, we sort of try and understand and psychologically cope with whatever adversities or, or successes that we might have, sometimes that can lead us in the wrong direction and we can, we, we, we can um, end up um, tying ourselves in knots with expectations and uh, with you know, desires and beliefs that can't be fulfilled. So, um, you know, all, all of those reasons lead one to, be, to becoming vulnerable. Hmm. And what is actually happening in the brain um, when someone is suffering and, and what gives rise to the, the physical symptoms that most of the patients in, in the book do exhibit? Well, obviously the brain is such a complex organ um, but we, we've got to try and un- we, we, we are, I think, getting better at understanding um, different functions of, of, of the brain in terms of the way that our minds, brains are constantly interpreting uh, evidence, interpreting sensations and uh, perceptions. That, that nothing's coming in like a raw emotion or a raw like a, a like a color or a, a sound it's never just coming in unscathed we're 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 processing information from the from the minute it hits our senses and we bring to that's in order that we can understand uh, all of these sensations that we're being bombarded with we've got to kind of package them in a certain way uh, anticipate what's coming uh, and and so that's why we're able to 
process so much information so quickly. But that also, the side effect of that is that sometimes our assumptions or our expectations are slightly wrong. And uh, so that can lead us to have perceptions when there isn't really a stimulus out there because we're, you know, we're expecting it so much. Uh, and in other words, that's a hallucination. Um, similarly, beliefs that we uh, hold very dear that are part of our sense of who we are, sometimes when uh, information or evidence comes along that slightly contradicts them, we just can't deal with it. And uh, we ignore the, that sort of information as well. And then our biological drives to, to eat, to reproduce, uh, to, to sleep and wake, they're, they're very delicate. It's a very delicate machinery. And a slight, um, a slight twist here or there, and uh, some of these functions can just go excessively or, or can fail to reach a normal threshold and that can have profound effects on on our on our behavior because after all we are animals and we are sort of uh, we have a sort of engine room of these biological functions and drives um, and and they are evolutionary very you know ancient but uh, uh, you know slightly too much or slightly too little and we can be driven into what we recognize as as, as psychiatric disorders, they can affect our mood, they can affect our behavior. Um, in terms of physical symptoms, again, you know, the, the, the mind and the body are so inextricably linked, you can't really, you know, have one without the other. Uh, but again, interpretation is so important. Uh, is it, you know, do we think that a symptom is um, harbinger of some terrible uh, illness or catastrophe, or do we think that it's just a sensation that can come and go, and that sometimes sensations can, uh, you know, play tricks on us? So, a lot of people, it's their interpretation of symptoms uh, that leads them into becoming, you know, very fixated, and uh, it, it, it sort of diminishes their ability to actually use their bodies in a healthy way. Uh, and sometimes just trying to unravel how they've developed those ideas about the symptoms in their bodies uh, that uh, they can regain control over them. So how would you treat something like that? What, what would you do? Well, um, <laughs> I guess I've been talking about very gen general generalities um, what, can, can you be a bit more specific? Sorry, yeah, so the, the, the final example where you said that someone um, might have a symptom and, and overthink and, and um, read into it something, you know, how, how do you get a person past that if that's what their brain is telling them? So if a person's convinced that they have an, um, a physical condition uh, which is sort of slightly at odds with what their medical attendants are telling them. Mm -hmm. um, is, is that the sort of thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that can be that can be a very very lonely and painful place. Um, and 
you perhaps start out as a as a as a young uh, practitioner thinking, well, we just need to give the person the facts and tell them they're fine. The tests are all negative or or whatever. But you soon learn that not only does that not help, sometimes that actually makes it worse. Um, and it's very much about putting yourselves fully in the shoes of the other person and and seeing how um, you know commanding their experiences are and how that uh, simple information isn't enough to override that. Uh, but on the other hand, it is about beliefs and ideas. So that tells you if 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 those beliefs and ideas are enough to cripple a person, in a sense, uh, then they're powerful enough to, to free them, free them from uh, th that tyranny. But you've got to go into, you've got to really understand where the beliefs and ideas are coming from and try and help the person themselves find alternatives to test different hypotheses. Okay, well, it may be that you feel as though uh, if you were to exert yourself, you're going to suffer from overwhelming fatigue and that just proves that there's something deeply amiss with your body. But here's another explanation. Let's test that. You know, um, let, perhaps it is that you try to do too much and then put strain on your body having not done anything for many weeks or months. So let's try and do it more gradually. Expect a bit of symptoms, but then press on. And then the person can uh, experience for themselves some sense of improvement or um, regaining of ability. So it, it's by understanding the physiology, but also understanding where the person's own beliefs come from and try and help them to unravel them rather than simply, you know, trying to browbeat them into giving up those beliefs because mm. that doesn't work. Mm. And you've said how no one is immune and, you know, we all could mm -hmm. be um, at this point in our lives at some time. Um, mm. Why do you think there is then such a stigma around mental health and having conversations about mental health? Yes. Um, I mean, I think that is improving. I, I think uh, we are having more conversations about mental health and, uh, you know, we're not... We're not to be political, uh, all of the, the, the political parties up to the election were saying, were making various pledges about mental health and uh, improvements in funding for mental health and understanding. And I mean, that's, that's never happened before. Uh, so at least it is coming out in the open and the, the hope would be that that would reduce stigma. Um, but I think stigma is a very stubborn thing, uh, and it's partly it's partly because there's 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 also an ethical and moral dimension to psychiatry uh, in a way that doesn't apply to other branches of medicine. You know, it's it's about what people how how people treat each other. Um, it's about um, whether you know what what your obligations are to try and get better and often uh, people presume that 
certain kinds of patients, psychiatric patients, um, don't want to get better, um, and that their behavior is about uh, controlling other people, making threats, um, and so forth. And although those are usually unfounded, um, and, and that's just sort of a prejudice, nevertheless, it is part of the mix. And uh, so I think it is something to do with the, you know, whether a person is, 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 has volition and is somehow responsible for the way they behave. So a psychiatrist doesn't, should never put the person as being responsible for getting ill in the same way you don't blame a person for, for having a heart attack or having a stroke. But on the other hand, they have to, uh, they have to participate in the process of recovery. Yes, it may be that they've got to take medication and that the medications aren't as effective as we'd like, but it often involves them confronting their previous beliefs and behavior and trying to change it. So it does require the person to participate in a way that is a bit unique. I mean, one of the, one of the things about stigma, people say, well, um, you wouldn't blame a person for having a broken leg or cancer. Why do you blame them? Because they're depressed. Or you wouldn't say to someone with a broken leg, just, you know, um, get back on your feet. Why do, why do people say that to you when you're depressed? And the aim of those sorts of campaigns, I think, is to, is to reduce stigma and to say, look, it's an illness like any other illness. But when you speak to people with depression, they'll say, well, it is an illness, but it's not quite like any other illness because it's really, it's about me as a core person uh, in a way that if, if I break my leg, I don't kind of feel that as a core person, there's something changed about me. So, so while, while it's, it's a kind of useful starting point to say uh, mental illnesses are illnesses like any other, it's not quite true. And uh, trying to understand why it's not quite true, why it's not quite people's experience, that if they've had depression and they've had a broken leg, they'll say, no, they're not the same. Um, that's what makes the fascination, I think. And that's what the challenge is for, for us. And, and, when, and, and when we understand that a bit better, perhaps then the stigma will start to, to unravel a little bit. Mm. And are there any things that, that I could do to protect and support my mental health? Is it, or is it all kind of um, determined by factors that I can't control? Um, gosh, no, that would, be, that would be a very fatalistic position, wouldn't it? I mean, I think uh, because physical health and mental health are so connected, if you, do, if you look after your physical health, then a lot of your mental health will take care of itself. Um, yeah, you've got to you've got to try and be lucky. Um, I think uh, nurturing relationships, so that if you're going through a bad 
time, you've got friends and others who can support you. And if you offer the same kind of support to them, um, it's good for them. Plus, you learn a lot about how you, you are, you know, how you might be more resilient yourself. And is there anything that um, is is commonly, you know, miscommunicated about mental ill health that that you really think um, needs to be corrected? Anything that you're quite passionate about that that our readers or listeners would want to know? I think that well, I think as we've said, it, it can uh, it can happen to anybody. So um, it it it's wrong to to think that there are certain people uh, who you know are in some way uh, weak in some sense, morally or or emotionally. You know that that's that's really not correct. It's not. It's not helpful, and uh, that really should be should be banished. Um, I also think that um, in our sometimes in our attempts to understand mental health and, and and actually you know genuinely to see this as something that affects can affect anybody and everybody, um, there is a slight tendency to ignore the, the the more seriously mentally ill. So on the one hand, we want to say, yes, this can happen to everybody. You know, it's happening to me. I get depressed or anxious. We, it sometimes downplays the really, really serious uh, extremes that sometimes people can have. So when they're talking about their own experience that, uh, you know, I suffer, I'm bipolar or uh, I have autism, that's fine. Yes, it helps understand that we're all of us on a spectrum. But sometimes the people at the real extreme end of the spectrum who aren't, who aren't telling you about their experiences in, in this sort of relaxed way, they sometimes get ignored. So one, one thing is to, to, to understand that there are people who are very, very unwell, who need a lot of care, who really need professional help they need um you know biological physical and social support we need a lot of research to understand what's going on in the brains and the minds of these people it's not all just uh part of life so you know the spectrum idea is very important but we mustn't ex- mustn't forget that there's an a, there's a top end of the spectrum where things are going on that are very serious and they uh you know they they they, they need proper investment. And in terms of the the research that's that's going into this at the moment, what what can you tell me that, that's being done that's possibly new or, or on the horizon? Well, um, as we've talked a little bit about our understanding of the brain, and you know that is just a revolution in in science uh, now. Uh, uh, the kind of uh, tools that neuroscientists have to understand at a minute level the, the, the chemical exchanges going on in the brain, how the, the neurons develop, how the, they form connections. Um, you know, it, it's, the pace of research is just, it's just extraordinary. Um, a lot of those neuroscientists um, don't kind of... Uh, 
don't really feel that they have anything much to contribute to mental health. They're just interested, you know, how the brain works in a way. But uh, I think that they have an enormous amount to contribute. And I, I think the way that they are sort of learning about how the brain learns information, how it adapts, uh, how it makes predictions, that's going to have a huge impact on our understanding of, of uh, mental illness. The other thing I think I also mentioned was uh, genes. So we know that certain illnesses and traits and temperament can run in families uh, to some extent. And understanding exactly how what the mechanisms are, uh, that's a very active area of research. We know that there, um, there aren't just like one or two genes that make you depressed or psychotic. It's usually dozens or even hundreds of genes uh, that have a tiny effect, but in, uh, accumulatively they can have a big effect. So understanding what each one of these genes is doing in terms of um, proteins and uh, biological systems and control and how they're switched on or off by things going on in the environment. You know, I think research on, on, on that sort of level in the next 20 years is going to be revelatory. That was neuropsychiatrist Professor Anthony David talking about mental health. His book, Into the Abyss, in which he tells stories of patients he has treated and what their cases have taught him, is out now. In the June issue of BBC Science Focus magazine, we take a look at the bacteria that can eat plastic, chew through carbon and create food from thin air. As always, there are loads more science stories inside and on sciencefocus.com. And if you like what you hear, let us know with a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, be sure to check out our brand new bonus podcast, Everything You Wanted to Know About, where we get the brightest minds in their fields to explain, well, everything they know about it. It's in our feed, so make sure you subscribe and listen as soon as they come out. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.